Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Andrew Carwood, and I'm the Director of Music here at St. Paul's. On behalf of the chapter and the whole cathedral community, it is a huge pleasure to welcome you to this magnificent space, a space which has been a home for prayer and praise, but also for debate, for argument and resolution. I'll introduce our speakers in a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of these events before, let me explain a little bit about how it works. In a moment, Professor Helen Bond and Professor Joan Taylor will reflect on the emerging evidence that as many as half of Jesus' disciples were women, and what happened to the church and to us when their ministries were erased from history. Helen will speak first for 10 minutes, and then Joan, and then Helen will speak again, and then Joan will speak again. Don't worry, it will all make sense, and they will stop eventually. <laughs> After that, we will take your questions. Now, if you have a question, please write it on the back of your program and hold it up to be collected. There are people all around the dome who will be able to see you waving, uh, and they will collect your questions, and through the magic of technology, they will appear on the computer screen up here. You are an important part of this evening. It is your questions which help us take the debate to the next level and on. So please don't be shy about putting your questions down. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag female disciples. So that's the hashtag sign, female disciples. And if you'd like to send your question through your mobile, just type in your question and include that hashtag female disciples and we'll find it. Just two more practical things. If you didn't get a program on the way in, could you possibly put your hand up now? Because there are some images uh, which the, to which the speakers are referring. So it would be really good if you could see that. So everyone got a program with some images. Looks a bit like that. Brilliant. If you, if you find you haven't got it, then just put your hand up. Uh, the other practical thing is you've just been listening to me speak in this wonderful but difficult building. If you are having trouble hearing, can I suggest that you move? Okay. Often, I realize there's quite a lot of you here, so we're slightly limited. Um, often moving by just one chair or two can make a difference, or being slightly closer to the speakers. There's one up there. Uh, there's another one up there. There's some behind you. But try not to sit there and not enjoy the evening because you can't hear. And again, if you need help, please do ask someone. Now, I need to get to the important bit, which is to introduce our speakers. Helen Bond is Professor in Christian Origins at the University of Edinburgh, and she has just been appointed Head of the School of Divinity there. 
the first woman to hold that post in its 400-year history. Her books include Jesus, A Very Brief History, and the universally relatable, The Historical Jesus, A Guide for the Perplexed. She's been the historical consultant on lots of documentaries, including the History Channel's miniseries, The Bible, and BBC One's The Nativity, to their great benefit and ours. Last winter, she led an afternoon for us here about the historical Jesus, and it was our best-selling study afternoon ever. I'm not sure you knew that. About as many people wanted to come to it as are here under the dome tonight. Sadly, I wasn't able to be there. I had some musical things to deal with, but I think most of that was about Jesus, or at least I hope so. But some of it was about her, and her reputation as a great communicator. So we're really very delighted to welcome her back to St. Paul's this evening. Joan Taylor is Professor of Christian Origins at King's College London. She is the author of What Did Jesus Look Like? Bit of a spoiler alert here. If you're into stained glass windows, he didn't look like that. She's also edited The Body in Biblical, Christian and Jewish texts, and the very intriguing Jesus and Brian, exploring the historical Jesus and his times via Monty Python's Life of Brian. She was the historical consultant for the film Mary Magdalene, which came out earlier this year. If you haven't seen it, I do recommend it to you. It's really moving and a really beautiful film about Jesus' life and ministry. And together, these two wonderful people made the Channel 4 documentary, Jesus, Female Disciples, shown earlier this year. If one of their goals was to get the early church into the news, they certainly succeeded. Even the sun started to express interest. Widely viewed, widely reported, and much discussed, it was a really fascinating introduction into the whole subject of women's ministry and its roots in Jesus' own actions. Please don't forget about your questions. Make sure, make sure you contribute. It makes a real difference to us up here on the stage. Can I ask you now, please, to welcome both our speakers. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction, Andrew. And it's a real privilege to be here um, in this beautiful building tonight and to see so many people. It's um, really lovely to, to see you all, particularly as I know we're competing with the Bake Off, the final as well, as my daughter keeps telling me. So um, thank you doubly for that. Our theme for this evening is the participation of women in the very earliest Christian congregations. We're going to chart things from the time of Jesus and Paul, where women seem to be um, relatively prominent in the uh, Christian community, to later times when women's activities seem to be much more restricted.
So I'm going to, we're going to speak in uh, blocks of 10 minutes each, or at least we're going to try to keep ourselves to 10 minutes. And I want to start off by saying a few things about women in the Jesus movement. It's really important, first of all, though, to get a sense of the first century context. These are, of course, patriarchal times when power and privilege was in the hands of men. Most importantly, of course, elite men. But in every town and village throughout the Roman Empire, from local elites down to the smallest family unit, it was the men who made the decisions on behalf of their dependents. Women's roles were much more restricted frequently confined to domestic space and child-rearing, and unchaperoned interaction with men who weren't family members would have been frowned upon. In rural areas and amongst poorer folks, it might not always have been possible to keep to clearly defined gender roles. Poverty does have a knack of bringing people together. But even here, old habits died hard, and there was always a sense of the gendered nature of human life. What things were right and proper for women to do, and a strong sense of censorship if women dared to overstep the mark. So this is the world into which Jesus was born. It was a world that noticed the actions of men but not those of women. And of course, it was a world that would remember the names of Jesus' brothers, but not his sisters. It's just as important to be clear about the nature of the Gospels. They are first and foremost, of course, documents of faith, written to strengthen people's allegiance to Jesus. To declare, to declare him as God's anointed one, the Christ, even God's unique son. What they were never intended to be is a social history of earliest Christianity. They're not interested in recording who followed him and why, or documenting what drew some people to follow Jesus and not others. It's people in the modern world who want to know this kind of question. But for the most part, they're not going to find the answers to those things in the New Testament. And this applies all the more to Jesus's female followers. The story that the evangelists tell is obviously focused on Jesus himself. While indoor domestic space is sometimes described, the bulk of what was recorded belongs to the outside male space and relates to Jesus' actions with prominent men, particularly, particularly leaders like the Pharisees or the chief priests, the Roman governor later on, and of course the male disciples. So the emphasis is on Jesus, what he says and does, and what other men make of him. How then can we say anything at all about the place of women in the Jesus movement? The trick, I think, is to pay attention to tiny clues in the text. 
places where memories of women's participation have survived despite the patriarchal culture, and sometimes despite the intentions of the evangelists. Sometimes these little clues just somehow get through. And we'll also need to use a certain amount of imagination. This is always the case with ancient history, but all the more so when we're trying to understand how women fitted into things. So our knowledge is full of gaps. Our task as historians is to try to fill them in as plausible a way as possible. So I want to start then with Jesus' disciples. I recently gave a series of talks at a local boys' school about Jesus' female followers, and I asked them about the disciples. They were all quite sure that Jesus had 12 male disciples, though I have to say they weren't too good at naming them. Most of them thought that Paul was one of the disciples, and one bright spark even thought the Emperor Augustus had been one of Jesus' disciples. But the fact that Jesus had 12 male disciples does seem to have been historically certain. They're mentioned in all of, us, all of our earliest sources. And they also had a very specific purpose. The 12 represents the 12 tribes of Israel. In the time of Jesus, there were only two tribes left. 10 of them had been swept away by the Assyrians back in the eighth century. So by surrounding himself with 12 men, Jesus symbolically showed that Israel would be restored, that the land would be renewed, and that God this time would be in charge. Curiously, the list of 12 names is actually slightly different in each of the Gospels that lists them. I don't know if you'd noticed that. Towards the end, uh, Matthew and Luke get a little bit fuzzy, um, as does Mark. So that suggests that the 12-ness, the fact that there are 12, was more important than who actually made up the 12. And of course, as Christians moved out of a Jewish environment into the non-Jewish Gentile world, the symbolic value of 12 men became ever diminished. So Jesus did have 12 disciples, but this does not mean that that's all he had. And if we look in the Gospels, we find a few clues that suggest this is not the full story. Now, on your sheet, you've got a few uh, texts. If you look at the back page, page four, I think it is, you'll see the first clue, which is from Mark chapter 15. This is Mark 15, verses 40 to 41. Mark says, this is right at the very end of the story. Mark's told us everything about Jesus' story. Jesus is on the cross by this stage, so it's a, the next to last chapter. And Mark says, there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him from Jerusalem. So this is right at the end 
But we're told that there were many women and they'd come with Jesus right from Galilee. They were there during that Galilean ministry and they've now come to Jerusalem with him. Some of these women are named, but there are clearly more women than that. And this is a large group of people who've come up with him. So what we're being asked to do now is to actually change that whole mental picture. Before, all we've been aware of is Jesus and the 12, the 12 men. Now suddenly we're told that there was actually a much larger gathering, that it included women too. And they're said to follow Jesus. This doesn't simply mean walking on behind, helping out where they could. But in Mark's gospel, following is a central term. That's what Jesus says to, to would-be disciples right at the beginning. Follow me. It's almost a technical term for discipleship. So men and women walking around together on the journey to Jerusalem might have raised a few eyebrows. But people probably thought that they looked as though they were a band of people on the way to a festival, maybe going to the Passover, the kind of thing that Luke seems to imagine when he talks about the 12-year-old Jesus going to Jerusalem with his family. It's possible, too, that quite a few of these women may have been relatives, perhaps related to Jesus or to some of the male disciples maybe wives and sisters. Church tradition, of course, links the Salome mentioned here with the mother of James and, Joseph, and, and, James and, and John, the sons of Zebedee. So for Mark, these women are going to be the link between Jesus on the cross, the, uh, the burial of Jesus, and the empty tomb. All the men have gone away by this time. They've all deserted Jesus in the garden at the arrest. And so Mark has to use women as the link to say that the same Jesus who was crucified was the Jesus who was buried. The same, and and the, the women went back to the same place and found the tomb empty. And if it wasn't for that, we would have known nothing at all about these women. It's simply because the, the men have all disappeared and Mark now has to fall back on the female disciples. Now, the second clue comes from Luke 8, which is also on your sheet. This is Luke's version of that Markan story. He puts it a lot earlier. Now it's much earlier in his gospel when Jesus is still in Galilee. But he adds a few new ideas. He says... Soon afterwards, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own resources. Here again, we have some named women, including some of apparently high status. My favorite woman of uh, Jesus's, fa Jesus's female followers is Joanna here, the wife of Chusa. 
Now, people say that Chusa is a Nabataean name, so he's an Arab, and maybe he's a slave. He's certainly the overseer of Herod's estates. But even if he is a slave, he's clearly of high rank. And so Joanna, as his wife, would also have been of high rank herself, or at least a respected member of the court. So it's intriguing to imagine what it would have been like for her to leave all of that behind and to join Jesus on the road, and also to think what the court gossips would have made of that. So here we are with the women following Jesus, uh, Luke adds that extra information that they provided for them out of their own resources. This seems to be financial. They have money. They're relatively high-status women, and they're following Jesus. So there's good evidence then that Jesus wasn't just accompanied by 12 male disciples, but that there are women there too. But... Given all I said earlier about this patriarchal culture where women are very much second rate, why on earth would Jesus want women in his group? What was the point of having any female followers? Surely they were more trouble than they were worth. Well, perhaps not. And I think the answer lies precisely in the fact that it was a patriarchal society. If you think about it, if Jesus and his disciples went to a town, to a marketplace, and started to preach, but groups of women would have been able to hear him, but it would have been socially very difficult for them to come up to Jesus, to speak to men they weren't related to, to perhaps offer themselves for healing, and certainly to be baptized. You wouldn't allow a man not related to you to touch you. But if there are women in the group, the women, of course, were perfectly placed to befriend other women, to talk to them as they drew water at the well, to wash clothes with them down at the water, and to, to go into their homes and to befriend them. In all of these situations, women would have been able to spread the message about Jesus to other women in a way that men would not have been. So they're basically, I think, doing all the same things that the men are doing, but given the gendered nature of society, they are going to the women while the men are going to the men. Now, there's much more we could say about this, but I'm going to hand over now to Joan, who's going to say more about that most famous of Jesus's followers, Mary Magdalene, and also to say more about um, missionary pairs. Thank you. Thanks. Yes, just following on, really, from where Helen has left off. Um, for many of us, Mary Magdalene is the paradigm of the female disciple, and she's become so popular in contemporary culture that we almost see her as the key female disciple and all the other ones fade into oblivion. She does, of course, have a very important place in all of the resurrection stories, but we need to move as Helen said, to think of many other 
women. The, uh, the word many is something that really resounds uh, in this description of the, the female disciples of Jesus in, in Galilee. But Mary, of course, uh, has captured the hearts of contemporary society and, and people who are not within the church also find Mary absolutely fascinating. If you have seen Jesus Christ Superstar, you will know that she is Jesus' love interest. And if you've read Dan uh, Brown, uh, of course, there's all the, the story about Mary Magdalene as, as the wife of Jesus bearing his child. So this, this figure has captured the, the public imagination in all sorts of different ways. But if we're trying to get to the historical Mary Magdalene and think of her as a real person in Galilee, we've actually got very little information that we can use as historians to explore who she is. And uh, of course in Luke 8, we have mentioned that she was someone <laughs> from whom seven demons had gone out. But don't think by that, that there was anything particularly demonic about her. Um, she doesn't have anything specially evil about her before she comes to Jesus, because in the ancient world, a demon is what caused illness inside you. So while we think of germs and viruses, and perhaps uh, things that cause mental illness, uh, this was uh, the way that the people of the first century understood anything that had gone wrong with your body or your mind. So Mary is someone who has been healed of something. Seven demons indicate she'd had something pretty horrible that she was grappling with. Um, but all of the other women apparently are especially taken by Jesus because they have also had some illness and infirmity and they have been healed by him. And that is their arrival in terms of feeling the call, really, to, to join uh, the, the band of disciples. We also have in Luke this idea that Mary is called Magdalene. Now, I want to push back against the idea that Mary's name is simply because she came from a place called Magdala. In fact, there's no place called Magdala that is attested in the early literature. And the name Magdala in Hebrew, Migdal, simply means tower. So to be called a place, you know, Mary of the tower, doesn't actually give you a very precise location. There are lots and lots of places in Judea in the first century, it's called Migdal something, Magdal something, uh, but we don't have any one place that's just called Magdala in the first century. There's a story to this, and I could go on about it, and later on Christians identify a place and call it Magdala, but in the first century we have trouble locating her. And what's really interesting is that uh, in the early 5th century, St. Jerome identified that there was nothing about her place that was being identified in her name. It was all about who she was. So uh, Jerome wrote uh, to a, a woman called Principia, letter 127, and he, said, he refers to Mary properly the Magdalene, who, because of diligence and ardent faith, 
received the name of the tower. And she deserved to see the risen Christ first. So it's actually a nickname. It's something that says something about her. She is of the tower. It is a, a, a nickname that I think sounds like it's, she's a leader of some kind. So what can we do with that nickname? Maybe we can use our imaginations, as Helen says, to explore what um, someone called the toweress of the tower uh, actually meant. Well, the early church greatly esteemed uh, Mary Magdalene. And uh, in the Eastern Church, of course, she is uh, a, a, a great saint, the leading uh, disi female disciple of uh, Jesus. She appears as one of the 12 in some early Christian texts that are not particularly mainstream, <laughs> but uh, she is a, a very important woman, woman in the Pistis Sophia in other early Christian texts. So we've got Mary as someone quite singular in being a named woman, but we've also got this other a bunch of women who are named in both uh, Mark and Luke particularly, and they appear also in the Gospel of John, uh, disciples like Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene is uh, important uh, there in the Gospel of, of John. And trying to locate them, trying to visualize them within this group of Jesus' disciples, one of the things we might want to do is think again about what we mean in regard to the 12. As Helen says, it's a symbolic concept, the 12 tribes of Israel. And we've got 12 named men, as also the tribes of Israel are named after 12 men. But in fact, tribes imply not just men, but women who are their progenitors. And do we have some linkage of some of these women with what the job description of the 12 is all about? Now, if we look at the job description of the 12 in Mark 3:14, we have Jesus going up to a mountain and summoning those he wanted. And it says, so they came to him and he made 12. He doesn't appoint, he makes 12. So they came to him that he might, and he sent them out to proclaim the good news and to have authority to expel demons. So if you remember, demons are about healing. How do, you, how do you heal someone? You expel a demon from them and then they are whole, then they are well. So as Helen said, for that to happen, you need, in a patriarchal society, some women. When they come back to Jesus, uh, they say they've cast out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and cured them. And that immediately should alert us to the presence of women. Anointing with oil is very touchy-feely. It's not just, you are healed of a demon. It, it actually involved hands-on healing. For a man to do that in a, a woman's situation without women being involved, there's something wrong with this picture. And in fact, later on, um, oil of nard is specifically <coughs> associated with a woman in Bethany who anoints Jesus' head in Mark 14. So special oil, fragrant oil, is associated with women in this gospel. 
And the other thing that's fascinating is that Jesus sends out the 12 two by two. Now normally that's understood to just mean male pairs. They go off in, in twos. But that expression, two by two, you all know the nursery rhyme, um, is really geared to the concept of male and female pairs in both the Greek and the Hebrew. It's even used in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that expression, um, shtime, shtime, to refer to um, a, a male and female, a husband and wife. So it's not just a, a Greek idiom, it has a quite technical sense in terms of these pairs of male and female being sent out. So then that, that does make you think about, about what is going on, what we're, Mark veils things. As Helen said, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, you've got this reference to the women and we have to insert them imaginatively in the story when they're not explicitly mentioned. Uh, but if you look at this other passage, Mark 4, 10 to 11 on your uh, pamphlet, we've got these various references that are a little bit vague. And in this one, it just reads, when he was alone, those who were around him, along with the 12, asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables. There's an insider group that is more than the 12. We mustn't imagine a kind of Jesus with his band of 12 merry men. It is actually Jesus, the 12, or the, a group of, of male uh, disciples and also others who include women who are doing things, who are providing for him, who are following, who are serving him. So we've got this broader group um, and we can see it explicitly as including women in another passage in Mark 3, 34 to 35, where Jesus looks at those sitting around him. He says, here are my mother and my siblings for whoever does the will of God. They are my brother and my sister and my mother. And that expression, those around him, those about him, is the same in Greek in Mark 4 and also in Mark 3. And it implies that those around him include women who are called Jesus' sisters. So it's, as Helen says, we look at close the, the readings closely. We unpick them. And we try and see where women are veiled in our texts. And as we do this, in fact, what happens is more and more women jump out. Um, the, the gospel writers have hidden the women because they're a bit worried about how the women are going to come across to people. Um, they're concerned about the criticisms Jesus could have because of women in his uh, group. But they are part of the insider group Remember, it's to those outside um, that the parables are spoken and they don't understand. Uh, and they are, yeah, the, the women are part of this close group around Jesus and they are serving, providing, uh, they are doing things, healing. This is uh, part of their job description as well. So um, now we could say a lot more about the women disciples of Jesus, but we're going to move on uh, and look a little bit at the early church in terms of uh, the Apostle Paul and then go on uh, through to about the sixth century. So I'll hand back to Helen. Thank you.
Thanks, Jane. The Apostle Paul generally has a bad reputation when it comes to women. George Bernard Shaw described him as the eternal enemy of women. And for most people, he's simply seen as a misogynist. In many respects, though, this is unfounded. We need to make a distinction here between the genuine letters of Paul and those that came later on. Those that were written by disciples of Paul who believed that they were conveying the thoughts of Paul for a new generation. So the genuine letters, as they're usually identified by scholars, probably come from around the 50s CE. So they're very early and include letters like 1 Corinthians, Galatians and Romans. Those written by later disciples, often known as pseudo-Paulines or deuteropaulines, come from the very late first century, possibly even early second century, and include works like Ephesians and the Pastorals, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. Now, there are many differences between these two uh, broad groups of letters, none more so, perhaps, than their attitude to women. So if we look at Paul's genuine letters first, there's actually nothing or very little in Paul's genuine letters that suggests that he's wanting to curtail the activities of women. In fact, quite the opposite. In 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about women prophesying in church. And he does say that they need to cover their heads. They need to have veils. But he accepts that they can prophesy. And I think the best insight to Paul's views on women comes from the final chapter of his letter to the Romans, chapter 16. Now, Romans, of course, was one of Paul's most important letters. He's writing to a church that he has not founded, and he's writing to explain his views in great depth. The final chapter of Romans, chapter 16, is largely a list of names of people that he knows there. A shout out, as my children would say, to all the people he knows in the Roman congregation. And he gives a little idea about their role. The whole point, of course, is that they can vouch for Paul. They can tell other members of the Roman church something about him. So the opening verses of Romans 16 are on your handout. So Romans 16, 1 to 4, he starts off by saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Kentriae, so that you may welcome her in the Lord, as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Now, this whole final chapter of Romans is a fascinating insight into the social world of an incredibly early Christian church. 
And amazingly, if you count up the number of names here, male names and female names, a third of the names here are female. So this is just a random selection of people that Paul knows in the Roman church, and a third of them are women. If we start with Phoebe, we learn that she's a deacon of the church and a benefactor of many. So deacon is clearly a high-ranking person, perhaps a leader, some kind of minister in this church. And the word benefactor here implies somebody um, with financial resources. She's some kind of patron of uh, Paul and other people too. Now, this is one of the places where translation does matter. Um, older translations here tended to give a much more gendered version. They would say she was a deaconess in the church. And of course, that's important because in some modern congregations, deaconess is seen as a lesser role to deacon and certainly a lesser role to a minister or a priest. She's also in these earlier translations described as a helper. Again, that's a very strange word, a very gendered, very female word. She's a helper. What does that mean? Almost anything. Whereas benefactor, which is actually what the word says, again, has that idea of being a patron, somebody much more important. But what's really important about Phoebe is that she is not one of the women in Rome or one of the people in Rome that, that Paul is saying, giving his greetings to, but she is somebody who he's asking the people to welcome. She is actually taking the letter with her. So Paul is asking them to greet her um, and to make her welcome. And this is really amazing. This is the most important letter that Paul will ever write, and he gives it to a woman. She will not only take it to Rome, but she'll read it out. She'll explain it. She'll teach the contents of it to the Roman community. So this is a long way from the, the misogynist Paul that we're more used to. The second group of people here I want to look at are Prisca and Aquila. Now Prisca here is female, Aquila the husband is male, but it's very unusual to put a woman's name first in the ancient world. We think nothing of it today, but to put the woman's name first suggested that she was much more important than her, her husband. Now, this, this, these two people seem to be one of the missionary pairs that, that Joan has been talking about. And we know about these two from other sources. We know they traveled around the Mediterranean preaching the new faith. In Acts, Prisca even teaches a prominent philosopher known as Apollos more about the Christian faith. We also hear here that um, they have a church meeting in their house. In the early days, of course, Christians didn't have any kind of buildings, and so they met one another in homes, in shops, in public spaces. And I think it's quite interesting to speculate. Again, all we can do is speculate and use our imagination. But what difference does it make when churches, where congregations are meeting in homes, in domestic spaces? 
And I, it seems to be to me to me to be no accident that many of these house churches are linked in the New Testament with women. So we have Chloe, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2, and several other women are mentioned in uh, this particular passage in, Ro in Romans. So what we have here in Paul then seems to be an extension of what we had in Jesus early on. The new movement is drawing on women's uh, abilities as benefactors, teachers and homeowners as it spreads throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. In many respects, this shouldn't surprise us. The early church, of course, expected the end of the world to come very soon. And sociologists of religion have shown that millenarian movements such as this one often tend to be rather more egalitarian than society at large. What's the point of expecting women to know their place if you think society is going to be swept away any moment soon? And why waste the ability of, of women when the message needs to be got out? But of course, things changed. Decades passed and Jesus did not return. And Christians realized that they were going to have to get used to being in the world for the long run. And they started to think about how to, how to organize themselves and to look respectable. And it's at this point that attention seems to have been directed towards female members. And that's because there was a general feeling in antiquity that you could evaluate the state of a country or a household simply by looking at the behavior of its women. If women knew their place, if women were subservient to men and confined their interests to the domestic world and child rearing, then all was well. But if women tried to dominate their husbands or tried to assume power and assert control, then things were badly wrong. The same holds true in the religious sphere. Cults that reinforced the general patriarchal outlook that kept women in their place were supported by the state. Those that didn't tended to be banned. And so a very easy way to criticize a religious cult, particularly a new one like Christianity, was to cast aspersions on its women folk. And Joan will be giving more examples of this later. But by the end of the first century, Christians had another problem. The Jewish homeland had seen a disastrous revolt against Rome that broke out in 66 CE and culminated in the destruction of not only the city of Jerusalem, but the most sacred temple. And a wave of anti-Semitism seems to have spread throughout the empire. However much Christians wanted to stress their connections with Judaism to present themselves as the new Israel, such a strategy was also fraught with danger. It was clearly a time to keep their heads down and to show that they were respectable and law-abiding. And a good way to do this was to make sure that women knew their place. So it's in this period that we get what I've referred to as the Deutero-Pauline letters with their much more restrictive attitude to women. 
Some of them, like Ephesians 5, contain what's known as a household code. These were particularly popular in Greco-Roman circles, and they tend to lay out a series of hierarchies within the house. So at the top, you have the master, then the wife, then the children, and then the servants and slaves at the bottom. Now, the Christian ones tend to Christianize these household codes, but they still buy into the same social structures. So, for example, Ephesians 5, 22 to 23 says, and I'm sorry, this text isn't on your handout. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And he is himself its saviour. Admittedly, husbands are later instructed to love their wives. But the subservience position required of women here and the way it's linked to uh, Christ and the church, men and women are linked to Christ and the church, is quite striking and isn't anything we get in Jesus or Paul. The first letter to Timothy, which may have been written in the very late first century or early second century, is even worse. 1 Timothy 2.9 instructs women to be modest about their appearance, not to braid their hair or to wear gold or pearls or costly attire. Two verses later, the same author tells women to learn in silence with all submissiveness. I do not permit women to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent, the author says. Women, he goes on to say, are going to be saved by childbirth. Now, there's a very similar passage to this in 1 Corinthians 14, which sort of occurs like a bolt out of the blue, that also says that women should be silent in the churches, and if they have questions, they should ask their husbands when they go home. The fact that this is so different, this passage in 1 Corinthians 14 is so different to anything else that you get in Paul, has led most scholars to think that it's a later interpolation. It's an insertion into that Pauline letter from somebody who's read perhaps 1 Timothy or agrees with the kind of sentiment that you get there. So it's much more the kind of thing you get in the late first century, early second century than anything you find in Paul. At this period, late first century, early second century, the church really is trying to restrict women to keep them quiet and subservient. But there is a positive side to all of this. It may not seem so, but it seems to me that there would be no point in telling women to dress modestly and to be silent in the church if they were already doing these things. Clearly, they weren't. And in some places, women's voices were still being heard in the churches. And clearly, in some churches, women were foregoing marriage and child-rearing child in favour of preaching the gospel. Hence, the author of 1 Timothy has to tell them to mend their ways. But these texts, of course, show a definite concern to limit women's roles and make sure that they 
and therefore the church, looked respectable to outsiders. And of course, the legacy of these texts, in terms of restricting women's roles, not only in churches, but in seminaries and theological colleges throughout the world and throughout the ages, has been huge. What the author of 1 Timothy would make of the pair of us here tonight, two female professors talking in a church, goodness knows. So we've already come a long way from Galilee, and I'm going to pass over to Joan now to continue the story. Yes, it's a, a long and not particularly happy story now. <laughs> um, in the second century, there was not only the Deutero-Pauline letters being read uh, and the pastoral epistles, but there were many aspects of the church. The church was an enormously diverse organism. And the more we study the second century material, the more we realize that as the, the seed of the, the story of Jesus was planted in all these different places around the Mediterranean world and through the Eastern world as well, different types of Christianities sprung up. But what is really extraordinary is if you look across the board at all these different types of Christianity that you can see, whether they're Marcionites or Gnostics that esteem Mary Magdalene or Montanists, what is quite consistent is that there are very prominent female leaders in a lot of these different Christianities. But the mainstream church went along a particular trajectory that seemed to be much more concerned about the sorts of societal pressures that would imply that there were strict things that men did and women did, that the philosophers had defined a woman's philosophy and a men's philosophy, and this is the right way of doing things. So there were issues about how the church would navigate social concerns. In fact, we see that already in the pastoral epistles. There's a quite a, a clear emphasis on, on how Christians are perceived by society. Now, this doesn't come out of nowhere, but we know that Christians were quite persecuted in different parts of the empire at different times and could suffer horribly. So you didn't want to do anything that would wind people up in your neighborhood and indicate that you were in any way uh, an unsavory group, or in fact, a stupid group. <laughs> because what we see in some of the literature is that any place that included a large number of women would be automatically dismissed by uh, well-to-do men anyway as having no value whatsoever. And we can see this in one of the texts that we haven't given you uh, tonight. It's quite a long text by um, a philosopher called Celsus or Celsus in the middle of the second century writing against Christians. He's very bothered by Christians. There are too many of them and they're so wrong in so many different ways. And later on in uh, the third century, the great church father Origen wrote a great 
uh, treatise against uh, Celsus, called Against Celsus, uh, and you can uh, read the translation by Henry Chadwick, which is uh, quite well known. Now, Celsus uh, wrote about what Christians do, and I just read out a little bit to, get, to give you the flavor of his criticisms against Christians. He says, in private houses also we see wool workers, cobblers, laundry workers, and the most illiterate and bucolic yokels who would not dare to say anything at all in front of their elders and more intelligent masters, but whenever they and some stupid women with them get hold of children in private, they let out some astounding statements, as for example, that they must not pay any attention to their father and school teachers, but must obey them. They say that these talk nonsense, have no understanding, and that in reality they neither know nor are able to do anything good, but are taken up by mere empty chatter, and so on and so forth. And what happens, but if they, but if they like, they should leave father and their schoolmasters, the children should leave and come and follow them, and go along with the women and little children who are their playfellows to the wool dresser's shop, or to the cobbler's, or to the washerwoman's shop, that they may learn perfection. And by saying this, they persuade them now that's a wonderful text because it gives us an indication that women were spreading the word in the washerwoman's shop. We've come a long way from the washerwoman's shop. <laughs> and Celsus was seeing this as something that was severely problematic in society, that these women and stupid men were undermining the very fabric of society by perverting children uh, to disobey their schoolmasters and fathers. So you get the sense of what the Christians were up against and why they wanted to play down the role of women in the circle of Jesus' closest disciples and um, as the church went on in society. Now in your pamphlet, you'll see some pictures and we're using these pictures really because we've been alerted to them by the art historian Ali Katyas, who appeared in our documentary and talked about reading art and what we can learn um, from art when our texts, in fact, are probably quite severely edited <laughs> because in the fourth century, the Emperor Constantine uh, came in and became a Christian, which was great for stopping persecution, but possibly a little problematic in terms of gender and uh, things change, shall we say, in the fourth century. And she says you can see this play out in art. So we went along with Ali um, well, actually, we, we went along to the, the uh, museum in the Vatican, the Pio Cristiano Museum, and had a look at these sarcophagi, and she'd already talked through what we should look for in these sarcophagi. And in the first one on page one, you'll see that there's a picture of Jesus raising Lazarus. You can see Lazarus over on the left-hand side, and Jesus is pointing. Probably he's got a stick in his hand, uh, and that stick is the rod of Moses. He was wielding the rod of Moses, the miraculous uh, rod. And 
on either side of him are, are two women. There's one who is on her knees, and it's probably Mary, who has met him and fallen to his knees in the Gospel of John story, and the other one, Martha, and they are the same size as him, and uh, Mary's not veiled. It's possible Martha has a slight veil, but nothing really covering her. Um, and all the figures are the same size. And, and having the figures the same size in art actually indicates a certain level of respect for a figure. As we go on a little bit further in time into the fourth century, we see the same scene below. Jesus um, is raising Lazarus, and this time he's just raising his hand. He doesn't have his rod uh, with him. But this time, um, the woman is veiled. And we know that in the fourth century, veiling became customary for women uh, more and more. If you're a good Christian woman, the more you covered up, more modesty, more submission. All of this was st starting to happen in the fourth century. And she's bending down and she's much more um, sort of subordinate to, to Jesus. But if you turn the page to page two, you see what happens to these sarcophagi as time goes by. Um, and in fact, Mary gets minute. <laughs> Mary becomes, and some of these sarcophagi are kind of footstool, a little blob at the bottom of Jesus' feet. And she's very veiled and she's very small because she has to be super subordinate and, and reduced and it's all about Jesus raising Lazarus. Actually, Lazarus in this is pretty minute as well. Um, but, but the idea is that Jesus is big and, and the, the women are, are small. But Ali also told us that that role of women, the leadership of women, did continue on. And she showed us in Naples a rather wonderful um, piece of catacomb art, which she identified as this woman, Carulla, uh, that the name might be Carulla or Servia. You can see it in the uh, bottom left of the, of the picture. And what she said was that the, the woman is actually leading worship. And she is someone with the Alpha and Omega of, of Christ um, above her. And she's got the Gospels opened out on either side of her. And she is authoritatively praying and, and leading worship. And it's likely that she is a bishop. And there are even indications that w there were female bishops in um, this area of Italy at that time that the church was trying to stamp out. So... The survival keeps on going through to the sixth century and possibly beyond. Uh, there's all sorts of other art that might indicate that a woman's leadership continues. But the question is, I suppose, at the end, how do we restore it? How do we restore the voices of women that even at the beginning of the Gospels, they weren't truly recorded for all sorts of very good reasons. They were veiled in the Gospels. They get veiled over the course of time. How do we restore those women so that we can respectfully bring them back into our consciousness in our faith communities today? Thank you. Well, um, Joan, Helen, um, that's an extraordinary amount of information and thought-provoking <laughs> stuff. Somebody's written here, 
please would you write a book about this? Aww. I think it's probably, it's probably several books uh, rather than a book. Um, thank you for your questions. If you, do, if you do have any, please, there's one here I just see, um, please do indicate to them. Um, I want to start uh, with one of the things which has come through, which is asking if other itinerant preachers in Judea around the same time had female followers, or is it a uniquely, is it uniquely a Jesus thing? Have we, have we got any evidence? I might go to Helen first, seeing as you just let you catch your breath. Um, is, it, is it uniquely a Jesus thing, or do we have any evidence otherwise? I think the problem is lack of evidence in most cases. Um, I mean, Joan is an expert on John the Baptist, so I'm slightly hesitant to talk about him, but he certainly seemed to have got you know, a range of people, men and women, um, in terms of coming out to, to be baptized. And the historian Josephus tells us about various other sort of uh, religious leaders who again attracted men and women, and they, they were specifically told there were men and women. But in terms of having um, disciples, I'm not sure that the evidence is there for Judea, but Joan could say more about the Therapeutae in, mm. in Egypt. Yeah, there are Jewish women who are students of teachers, and we find them in Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, there's a group, as Helen said, that called the Therapeutae uh, that I have particularly written about, and uh, the author Philo of Alexandria, who is a contemporary of Jesus in the first century, he writes a, a treatise all about this group where there are not only men, but also women gathering together in this community, and they are participating, and they are composing music, and they are learning, and they, they are very much on the same page as the men. And in fact, Eusebius, the early uh, 4th century church historian, said, they're Christians. You know, <laughs> that's what we do. So he recognized something about the, the, the fact that there were men and women in worship together as being, at that time, very, very Christian. But yes, there were women who were, could be disciples, but it tended to be high up, uh, well-to-do women who were educated. Mm -hmm. Great. And um, I just want to pick up on something you said about the, the, the picture of um, Serra or Servia, because um, one of the questions that has also come in is, is, is there evidence, because you referred to this, is there evidence, I'll stay with you, Joan, for a moment, that women led churches and presided at the Eucharist? Because that image seems to suggest um, something of that sort. Yes, uh, certainly th that is what Ali Katias would argue. And uh, there have been all sorts of collections of documents and inscriptions that indicate that women were participating in, uh, in leading worship. Now, where you draw the line is, is difficult because, of course, the Eucharist itself develops. So when we've got the early house churches, we don't have Eucharist as such. We've got a common meal. And who was presiding over that? Uh, whoever was the host of the banquet, the, 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 the dining experience. So uh, that could very well also be the mother of John Mark if we were in John Mark's house in, uh, in Jerusalem or, uh, or Lydia or these other women who are named mm. in the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah. Do you want to say anything you want to say, Helen? Mm -hmm. I know. I'll try and I'll try and go backwards and forwards. I don't want to cut anyone out. Um, the um, there's a, 
a couple of questions about Mary Magdalene, which have come in, and one, one of which is, I think, really important, because we have a lot of different information about her, and we now know that some of the stuff that the medieval church believed in is, is, has become... Uh, you know, is, is, just, is just wrong. So let's get it out there on the table. Is there any evidence to suggest Mary Magdalene was a sex worker? Yeah. Is the question I've got here. I, I skipped over that yes. <laughs> and concentrated on the Eastern Orthodox tradition, which doesn't do this. But uh, Pope Gregory in the 6th century thought that she was the repentant uh, fallen woman in, in the Gospel of Luke that came in and, and, uh, and wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and it was all about um, a conflation of different women. What we do often find in, in church tradition is they just mash all the different women together. So instead of many women, you just kind of get this conglomeration. And I think it was also a way of reducing Mary Magdalene a bit so that she was no longer a prominent female disciple in the Western church like she was in the Eastern church. Yes, certainly some of the, some of the plain song hymns in her honor managed to cram absolutely every, every, every story into, <laughs> into seven verses. I'm um, just, just sticking with Mary Magdalene, is, is there a chance that the, the fact that you said that she's, uh, she's captured our imagination so much, do you think she's held back the other female figures in the story? Is it possible? That, that's an interesting idea. I, I think perhaps still we want to, because we have precious little information about any of these characters, um, that uh, if we can broaden Mary Magdalene and give her more of a character, then she shines out. And But the other women are still very shadowy. As Helen said, You know, we have to really work on trying to think what Joanna's life was really like. Mm -hmm. And I think it's significant too that we have... The, the two best-known women are Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And between them, they have sort of the two options open to women, to being a virgin or being a whore. And, you know, in, in sort of patriarchal times, that seems to be the two ways that you see women. And so I think, I think to some extent it is right that, that people have stopped seeing other women there because they've got these two sort of options there which seem to sort of express all you need to know about women. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, one of the things that occurred to me, and it's picked up on a question which has come in here, that, that of course the, when, the, when the early fathers decided what was going to be in the Bible, which books were actually going to, <laughs> going to be there, do you think there was any sense that they um, were repressing any information about women? But the question which has come from the floor, which I must say is, mm. did any of Jesus' women disciples write anything? And if they did, was it suppressed? <laughs> <laughs> well, Hebrews was uh, traditionally written by Prisca. Um, at least that's one of the, one of the options. Yeah. Um, I... I I mean, I, yeah, there's always stories about repressing and um, all of this. I, I think, generally speaking, the, one, the books that made it in the canon were the ones that most people thought were most useful. And it was, I think, largely a ground-up thing. So the four Gospels that we now know as canonical um, were genuinely the ones that most people found useful. Um, but I think there may well have been some element of... Um, particularly these ones that are on the sort of the Gnostic fringes, um, some of these certainly um, were perhaps repressed, although I'm not really convinced that they were as popular as, as some people might like to suggest. 
Mm. Yes, there's all sorts of mysteries about our writings and um, there's the, the line, you know, anonymous was a woman. Uh, so a lot of our early Christian texts are anonymous, uh, so we don't know uh, really what was happening in terms of women's authorship. Uh, we have beautiful images from Pompeii of women holding styly and, and having their wax tablets and women, particularly upper class women, could read and write. So they could also author texts. Um, that what kind of texts they authored? The, there was a, an understanding in the 1980s and 90s, people thought maybe some of the apocryphal acts were uh, written by women, but it becomes very speculative. How do you tell mm. if a, a text is written by a woman? Because a woman could write a text, arguably, that represses women if she's indoctrinated in such a way to feel that this is woman's place. You know, girls, know your place. Um, we know that sort of thing happens. So it doesn't necessarily mean that a liberated text is written by a woman and a non-liberated text is written by a man. Okay, I'm going to bring us, um, oh wow, there's a number of questions that are coming up, it's brilliant, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to go into the, come into the modern world a bit here, and they're difficult, some of these questions. First one is very short. Is the Christian church sexist? Nice, easy one. Well, it's impossible to, say, to answer, because it depends where you are. And uh, different faith communities are at different places in, in terms of issues of gender. Um, so at, I wouldn't want to say something all expensive in terms of an answer. And even different communities. I mean, Church of Scotland has had female ministers since 1968. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that women are going to be called in every church community or that you know, in every church community will be open and welcoming to women in its midst. So, yeah, I think it's, it's impossible to it say. But it's, it, generally speaking, I think it's probably more sexist than not. <laughs> That's very diplomatic. <laughs> um, there's a question here, which I'm going to read out verbatim. It says, I believe that the Holy Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible warns of false teaching. Do you think that what you are saying could be false teaching? No. <laughs> uh, well, let, let me put it another way. Um, I believe that Christ is the word and uh, the Bible gives testimony to him as the profound message of God. Uh, and that is what matters to me in terms of my faith and I try and follow it. And I also very strongly believe that Christ wanted to guide people to a realization of our full humanity as God wanted us to be. <laughs> well, I would agree. <laughs> um, yes, I, I. I suppose Joan and I often come across um, ideas like this, and 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 it, it's not uncommon amongst students even to have this idea that you know the the Bible is inspired, and particularly when you talk about some bits being perhaps genuinely Pauline, others perhaps not, um, for people to be 
to be worried by that. But, but my own view is that um, that's quite liberating. I think um, you know, scholarship itself can be inspired. We're, we're all humans trying to work out what it means, um, sort of the mysteries of Christianity. And um, anything, I think, that helps us to understand the, the, that those very ancient times and how Christianity began and developed is useful to us today. I don't think we should just sort of not think about it or, or not apply the knowledge that we have as historians to it. I will add that um, we, during our documentary, one bit that we had to cut out because we were over um, our <laughs> designated time was we talked to uh, an author called Philip Payne, and I would recommend those who are very strongly biblically literalist um, to read Philip Payne's work because that's where he comes from. Uh, he's very much of th that feeling in terms of, of the Bible. I don't share that, but that, that's where he comes from. And um, a really lovely man, and he explored the, the textual integrity. He's very interested in textual integrity. And he has uh, written uh, an entire book all about these issues. He says that there's a particular passage in 1 Corinthians which says, let the women keep silence in the churches, I don't allow them to speak. Um, th this is an addition to the text. And that addition to the text probably happened late third century, early fourth century, and it was part of this change. Uh, so that when Constantine came in and as, as the church was moving to a more sort of secular mode and wanting women to, to do the right thing, things got added into the text of the Bible. Uh, so that's Philip Payne's argument. I have two questions here. I'm, we, I'm so pleased that you've been so stimulated by this conversation, because I certainly have, and it's, it's becoming very clear through what's coming up here. There's two questions I want to link. I'm going to give you the first one first, because the, the, second, the, the second question might actually contain part of the answer. Um, it says, looking at the audience here today, it seems that there's much more interest in Jesus' female disciples among women compared to men. How can we spread understanding about the presence and leadership of women in the early church and the consequences for both modern church and society? Well, there's an immediate answer to that because your books and your television programs has obviously done, done a great deal. But what do you think? Is there, more, is there more we can do, more of the same, more different? Well, it would be interesting, actually. I mean, we have breakdowns of, um, I mean, we have audience viewers, but it, we obviously don't know whether most of those were female. So it may be that, that that's replicated in books, in, in documentaries. Yeah, it's, it's just that problem that um, equality and diversity is seen as a woman's thing. You know, we have exactly, we've just been going through a process in my, my department um, of gaining a, an award for being uh, equal and diverse. And the team who have had to, to put it all together have been all women. Um, or mostly women, and um, it's just one of those very diff difficult things. I think as the message gets out, as, as imagery gets out, I mean, one of the things we looked at in our documentary was the fact that nearly every film about Jesus has Jesus and the merry men, the 12 male disciples, and um, this is reinforced in everything we look at. So as that message gets out and as 
people start to think, well, actually, we should put a few women here as well. Maybe that will change, but it's a very slow process, I think. I should just say that your television programme, I think you told me, had more viewers than Homeland. It did. <laughs> Homeland's really good. So this is, you can just imagine how good this is. The, the second question I want to feed into this, because it may be a possible thing to help, is this, can we allow female voices to be heard by ceasing to talk about God as, as male and as he, mm. and that all the church should own the term God as both male and female? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> that would be great. Uh, I rather celebrate the fact that they is being used in the singular now, and I think that might have a a significant impact on Bible translations, at least some Bible translations in the future, because we've got this, instead of he, she, it problem, we've got they used as a, a singular. But of course these things take time and there are very entrenched attitudes and, and feelings and, and quite a lot at stake for people. Um, so I do understand it's hard to change, but if we can think um, if, if the church, instead of dragging its heels behind the rest of society, could actually take a cue from its founder and in fact um, go out on the roads a little bit and, uh, and radically change and call for change and, um, and value people for whatever they do and think no longer of the hierarchies and the restrictions that Consider, are considered normal, that would be wonderful. Is it possible, do you think? I think it's possible. I think there's some fantastic radical voices in, the, in faith communities today, and it's just getting that confidence up and, mm. and thinking, look, this is our foundation. This is where we should be. We shouldn't be in any way the, the, the problem in society in terms of sexism or any kind of prejudice. Uh, the church should be out there calling for the end of all of that kind of bias. Another difficult one here, I think. Um, it says here, how do you forgive God and or the church for letting women's history and leadership be sidelined like this? It's a really interesting question. Um, I, it's, I've never thought about it in terms of forgiveness and something that needs forgiving um, because I suppose I see it as a historian, as a, as a historical process. Um, I suppose there's, I mean, there's too many historical processes, too much, too much um, water under the bridge, but I, again, it's a question of trying to redeem things in the present, to, to repaint the picture and see things differently. But I don't think, I, I'm not sure that, f I, who would you forgive? Um, mm. <laughs> do you have any better? All of those centuries of, of male leaders and priests. And, and yet most of them, I think, you know, we, we look at back at them now and see them as, as doing um, things that have restricted women, but but they probably all thought. I mean, as we try to say, they were they thought they were trying to do the right thing to protect Christianity, to to shore it up against possible opponents on the outside. So I don't think they were doing it for bad reasons. It's just that women were the casualty in some way in all of that. Mm. I mean, it's it's interesting. We've it's interesting that governments now 
apologise mm, mm. to constituents who they feel they've wronged, does, does the church need to apologise to women? <laughs> Would that happen or not? Uh, it's very... Uh, it's, it's a, I think it's something we need to mull over uh, yeah. rather than uh, give a, a, a precise answer. Um, yes, uh, to, to some extent, um, the whole apology uh, of, of governments, it, it, it is slightly artificial mm. uh, because times move on and, and they're not the same people. And uh, But th I, I think it's just a general commitment to change, to not let um, the church be accused of bias and prejudice and, and bigotry when in fact the the church should be at the vanguard. If, if the, the church can really embrace that, I think that's more important than apologizing. <laughs> well, very sadly, our evening is, is drawing to a close. I haven't, I haven't actually managed to get through all the questions. I feel a bit guilty now, having exhorted you to Right, your questions. I've done a lot, but I haven't managed to get through quite all of them, so my apologies for that. Um, Joan and Helen, I'm wondering if you could, uh, just from our positions here, whether you'd want to give us a, a final thought or, or a little something to take away, something that, um, I mean, in a sense, you've almost, maybe you've just, just done it in the, the thing you've just said there, but, but a final thing, a hope or, a, or something for us to take away into the night. Yeah, I, I do sometimes get from students this understanding that the church is sexist. And I think it can be a block to people. And I think um, there's a great need for a, a spiritual vision in our society right now. And we really need to think of anything that is blocking people from realizing their true destiny, their humanity, and um, that deep spirituality we all need, we really need to remove them. Mm. Yeah, I would say something very similar, I think, to a lot of people, particularly people outside the church. The church stands for all the things that are wrong in society. It stands for sexism, for bigotry, for, you know, Christians are likely to be people, people who tut and find fault and... Um, I think the church is missing a trick if they if the church goes back to the the early days, the times of Jesus, and really tries to follow the message of Jesus. I think um, that would not only be a very different message, but I think one that um, a lot of people in the present day would find very attractive and and would want to follow. Well, this is a debate that needs to carry on, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, so much, there's so much to think about here for absolutely everyone on every, every side of the debate as it carries on. Um, I need to thank our speakers on your behalf. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in a second um, in the traditional way. Uh, but it has been absolutely fascinating. Um, and uh, I'm pleased to tell you that just over here we have a bookstore uh, which contains some, some of the wonderful work that these two people have done. Um, it's, they're, they're also at considerably discounted rates, I'm told to tell you, and um, Joan and Helen are very happy to sign copies for you. So this is a great opportunity uh, for you to, um, to find out more about this, and let's take it further together, all of us, uh, not just the two people leading up here, but it's something we all need to think about and to do. Um, 
I want to thank you for coming. You're always very welcome here. You go with our prayers and our blessings. Please come back and see us again. I want to thank hugely Elizabeth Foy, who heads up the adult learning department and her team, uh, who make the wonderful things um, like this that happen here. Um, but uh, in order to uh, finish appropriately, please will you give a very large round of applause to our two speakers. Brilliant. Thank you. Absolutely brilliant.